It's with great pleasure that I introduce to you Julie Guffman, uh, professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, I'm a great admirer of Julie's work. I'm just going to say that up front. Um, and as Melissa always says, she's a, an uber scholar of food studies. Um, I, I originally came across Julie's work when she was working on organic farming in California, and many of you will have known her book, Agrarian Dreams. I think it's the paradox of organic farming, and um, you know, kind of points to exactly that uh, challenges and norms and understandings we have that were kind of circulating around organic farming and at that particular time and continue to circulate today. Um, that book, I just want to kind of um, share with you the accolade she's received. Um, oh, did I write the accolade you received for that book? Uh, all right, well, I'm going to tell you, first of all, the, the one she's received for her latest book on weighing in, which she's going to talk about today, Obesity, Food Justice, and the Limits of Capitalism, um, was named the winner of the 2012 James M. Blount Innovative Publication Award from the Cultural and Political Ecology Specialty Group of the Association of American Geographers. And um, you also received a second award for that book. What was that? That was the um, Association for the Study of Food Society. That was a finalist for a third award. Yeah, for the Mills Award, right? A finalist for the... Um, yeah. Yes, a finalist for the Mills yes, Award. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, this, uh, her latest work uh, has received as many athletes as her earlier work. And I'm just thrilled to have Julie with us today, so please extend a warm welcome to her. Thank you so much for um, coming. Thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic being here. I haven't been in the UK since I was a child, and I'm just enjoying it every minute. The one thing I have to say is, even though I've been here since Friday, um, my body does not seem to want to adjust to the time change. <laughs> so last night was a fairly sleepless night. Um, so the good news is I'm used to giving talks without sleep, but the bad news is I tend to trip on my words more when that happens. So you will have to excuse me, and I will do my best to stay coherent. Um, but uh, at this point, I don't want my body to change back, because in two days, I'll be back home. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so um, I, what I want to do today is, is indeed share some of my uh, uh, recent research that's found in my book, uh, Weighing in Obesity, Food Justice, and the Limits of Capitalism. The asparagus on the cover is a complete bait and switch, so if you're curious about why I have asparagus, we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, I also, some of this work has also been published in the Annals of the Association of American Geographers and is, some of it's also forthcoming in Environment and Planning A, um, kind of more detailed accounts or narrowed accounts of this. Um, so what I want to focus on today are certain environmental explanations of obesity which have become quite popular among public health practitioners, geographers, planners, food activists, and not least the First Lady of the United States, and let me just say right now that I'm so thankful that she is still the First Lady of the United States, so I'm not going to pick on her too much at all, really. Um, so I specifically want to discuss what's been canonized in the literature as the obesogenic, environmental, obesogenic environment thesis, the idea that people are getting fatter because our built environment has a ubiquity of fast, junky food and a dearth of physical uh, physical activity opportunities. Um, and this is one of the earlier uh, published definitions of the obesogenic environment. Um, now it has close ties with the food desert thesis, 
um, the idea that we're getting fatter because there's a dearth of, of opportunities to eat healthy in the environment. So it's interesting that one of these definitions emphasizes ubiquity, the other emphasizes dearth. Um, but it's really two sides of the same coin. The point is that there's, we lack access to the right kind of food in the built environment. Um, and that really refers to fresh fruits and vegetables and fresh meats and, and of course, an excess of processed junk food. Now, this thesis is nearly hegemonic among planners and advocates, public policy people. And one reason it appears so um, popular is that it appears to shift blame away from individuals. Because there's some pretty nasty stuff that goes on when we talk about obesity in terms of individual responsibility. These are um, uh, a kind of social advertising campaign that went on in Georgia that was uh, really about shaming fat children um, that got a lot of uh, what was a very controversial campaign. And so a lot of folks want to stay away from this kind of public shaming and instead implicate um, the food industry and regional planning practices. Another reason I believe it's so popular is it leads to um, both uh, relatively palatable and doable solutions. Um, these include creating more outlets for fresh fruits and vegetables in inner city food deserts, redesigning or remarketing public spaces to encourage walking and bicycle riding, or educational campaigns to achieve obesity reduction. This is a slide of a farmer's market in a wealthy suburb of California in Marin County. Um, and so I think the idea here is to make public spaces more like this, which of course raises some interesting issues. Can you make, can you make disinvested city cores look like a wealthy suburb without indeed changing the cost of real estate there, which is something I'll touch on today. Um, now, I'm all for Im implicating powerful actors, but it's not at all clear that this thesis holds up to scrutiny. The problem is in part methodological. Studies are limited by the availability and commensurability of useful data to test the thesis and tend to rely on questionable proxies. You know, jack-in-the-box per square mile, drive-to-work times. Um, there's one study that looked at uh, how many what kind of fast food restaurants clustered around interstate highway exits, which was a really bizarre proxy for obesity. So that, that's part of the problem. It's also conceptual. Um, and that owes in part to the inability of quantitative research to answer questions of causality. Um, and, the, and a lot of these studies embed a lot of untested assumptions about the character of the problem. So today, I want to focus on two embedded assumptions about this um, thesis. One is that the built form determines people's eating and exercise behaviors. And two, that people's eating and exercise behaviors determine obesity. Now, that one is a much more challenging and controversial claim. Um, and, and you have every reason to be skeptical. So I will, but I will talk about that in a bit and give you some evidence that suggests that that obesity may be, have, be a much more complex and interactive process of our bodies and environments than, than we think of through kind of calories models of how we get fat. So taken together, these critiques suggest the existence of 
problem closure. And by that, I'm referring to the work of Martin Hager, who talks about when a specific definition of a problem is used to frame subsequent study of the problem's causes and consequences in ways that preclude alternative con conceptualizations of the problem. So this includes embedding assumptions about a scientific object's causes and character into the research of that object. Um, that's, so that's the problem of co-production that uh, science and technology studies scholars such as Sheila Jasanoff have discussed. Problem closure can also entail defining the cause of the problem in relation to socially acceptable solutions. So that's why you get this focus on farmers markets like that pictured, or bike paths. Um, such solutions are clearly more doable in today's political environment, um, and you know, and more easy to fathom re relative to alternative conceptualizations of the problem that might address, for instance, significant income inequality, class-related stresses, or the pervasiveness of toxins, all of which have been implicated in studies of obesity. For that matter, defining obesity to begin with as a problem, as a health problem in particular, is a problem of problem closure. Um, uh, it's, you know, we assume, or it's assumed in this literature that it's, it's a bad thing that we should prevent or stop. Um, and there's all sorts of evidence that suggests that obesity can be perhaps more adaptive, but it's, it's just not clear that obesity is a health problem that it's made out to be. I know that's a challenging claim as well. And so I'll talk a little bit about some of that evidence, but not much of that. I think if, you, if you're curious, we can talk about that in the Q&A as well. And so what I'm going to discuss has clear implications for food governance, and so I'll get to some of that at the end. Now, the one caveat I want to make, or maybe several, but I'll make this one, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that many of my working assumptions and examples and arguments draw on the US context. Um, and I think that that rather than say dismiss that as to say, well, then it doesn't relate here, I think we should be paying attention to what the differences are that matter, because I think there are some significant differences in the regulatory context of agrochemicals, for example, in, um, in city and regional development, I mean, the historical geography of places in the kind of ways that class and race work in different contexts. So, I don't know that I'm going to be discussing that, but we should be thinking all along, if that doesn't make sense for the UK context, why is it, what's different? Um, so, with that said, let me first focus on some of the scholarship on the obesogenic environment thesis. Here's a map of food deserts. Um, okay, so this thesis has given rise to a spate of scholarship, particularly popular with geographers who do geographic information systems and other kind of studies that work, rely on spatial analysis, so kind of quantitative modeling of the relationship between um, particular spaces and places and obesity. So you can model things like proximity to grocery stores, urban density, drive to work times, 
jack-in-the-box per square mile, you name it. Um, now, there's, a, there's so many studies of this, but for the most part, the studies that relate um, different foodscapes to obesity, here I'm going to focus mainly on food, not physical activity, um, they've yielded really marginal or inconclusive and sometimes contradictory results. Um, studies that have looked at the physical activity side have findings that are somewhat more robust, especially those that relate sprawl and weight status, um, although I think that may be a spurious correlation. So here in the, um, in the upper left-hand corner, you see a suburb. This is a typical sprawling suburb in the U.S. where there, you, you, know, you can see that it's all housing, separate housing. There's no grocery stores or schools there. There's probably no sidewalks or minimal sidewalks, and so you have to kind of drive um, to get where you need to go. Um, and so these are seen as obesogenic. Um, but they're also low-cost suburbs, so poor people or working people who don't have a lot of money move there. Um, so I'll get back to that point in a minute. So the marginality of these findings can be in part be can in part be explained methodologically, and here I'm going to mention just touch on three issues. So one of the most surprising features of this area of research is that many of these studies actually don't measure obesity in relationship to place or space, but rather extrapolate the relationship from other associations. For example, there's this one study that's cited quite a bit that claimed to look at the relationship between convenient access to fast food and the prevalence of obesity, obesity among black and low-income populations in uh, New, in Orleans Parish, Louisiana. Um, now what the study found is that the fast food restaurants were associated with predominantly black and low-income neighborhoods with race having stronger associations than income. In other words, where there was lots of black people congregated, there were more fast food restaurants. Yet the study only asserted that convenient access to fast food explains the prevalence of, among, of obesity among black and low-income populations. It actually didn't do that kind of uh, mapping. I will leave it the slide here. It actually didn't do that kind of mapping I showed in the previous slide. Um, another great limitation of these studies that I've already alluded to is the absence of appropriate data to test possible hypotheses about the environment. So it appears that data availability has driven much of the research and sometimes the data available is quite coarse. So one study, for example, that took place in Erie County, New York, found a statistically positive relationship between women's body mass index, the, the kind of general measure of obesity these days, which has all sorts of issues that we could talk about. Um, anyways, it found this positive relationship between women's BMI and diverse land use, which is interesting because in some studies, mixed land use is supposed to be what I call leptogenic, creating thinness. Anyways, it, that's what it found, especially when restaurants dominated non-residential land use. But the study didn't, um, because of what was available in the data sets, it, it couldn't differentiate a high-end restaurant like Berkeley's famous Chez Panisse or a, or a national food chain like Denny's, which would be hugely different in terms of who might live there and what, they, what their practices may be, or 
or why there might be obesity clustering in space. And sometimes the, the data is so coarse that it veers on the ridiculous. There's this one study that's cited quite a bit that found a relationship between fast food restaurants per square mile and rates of obesity. But it was done on a statewide basis. So, you know, you have Kansas is fatter than California based on, <laughs> based on this fast food per square mile business. Um, um, I think the greatest limitation is that these studies are designed to test correlations, thus in, in, in cases where associations are more robust, it is unclear what is driving what. For instance, some studies have found a significant association between the likelihood of being an obese in neighborhoods, again, with a high density of fast food restaurants, the same claim coming up over and over, in comparison with uh, places with low density of fast food restaurants. This would be a high density area, clearly. Likewise, several studies have shown modest to significant relationships between sprawl, again, um, and vehicle miles traveled to work in relationship to obesity. However, to me it seems quite a bit of a leap of logic to suggest that these features make people bigger, for there are several other possible explanations. For instance, restaurants may locate where they have likely buyers, or people who are already big and have low socioeconomic status because they are big, because Obesity is pretty much a guarantee to have for low socioeconomic status because there's discrimination against the life cycle for obese people. So they, are, they may locate in areas with high fast food density because the real estate is cheaper. So there's lots of critiques of these models because they really have revealed a lot. And some folks, of course, say, well, the models just aren't robust enough. We need to do, you know, further multivariate type analysis. Others say that this demonstrates the limits of quantitative research, that you really need to talk to people to find out what's going on and what they do. And it is true that the thesis treats people as kind of objects of their environments, as if there's nothing mediating the environment and their mouths. And I find this actually quite striking um, because here's, the, you know, the thesis, the impulse of the thesis is to de-responsibilize individuals, yet the thesis imagines people to be quite unreflexive in their day-to-day -day behaviors. And I, th and I think you can contrast that um, with, um, with how, the, what I, again, what I call leptogenic environments are imagined. Um, and where you have quite reflexive eaters who dine at the best restaurants and and walk to work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think there is this kind of implicit class bias in this thesis as well. Um, and and you know also just the idea that if fast junky food is ubiquitous and that's why we're getting fat, then how do we then explain thinness? And it, it, so it seems to suggest that people who are thin can somehow mediate this environment. Better. So I think there's a lot of kind of <coughs> cultural problems with the thesis. Um, so what few of these studies countenance is that it, that it may be 
the personal characteristics and behaviors of people that happen to happen to cluster in space that are the basis of the correlations between obesity and space or place. So the ne neglect of this possibility suggests that the thesis has not been informed by what's called the context or composition debate that has taken place in health geography. The heart of this debate is whether it is the attributes of places or the characteristics of people who happen to inhabit them that best predict health outcomes. So given the close association between weight status and socioeconomic status, this potential rebuke of the thesis deserves consideration. Again, especially because people who are fat are pretty much condemned to low socioeconomic status, they are more likely to locate in places where real estate is cheaper. Relatedly, the thesis ignores what makes environments obesogenic in the first place, and that has to have to do with race and class, which is to say that to the extent that some places have many features that are supposedly obesogenic, often reflects the financial resources of those who live there, um, and the waves of investment or disinvestment that have produced these kind of disparate environments. So the point can be argued from the obverse. The gentrified urban cores, like this, oops, I missed that slide. Whoops, missed that slide too. Those are the headless bodies that are treated like objects of the environment. Um, so the gentrified urban cores, and this is a photograph of upscale Noe Valley in San Francisco, um, they create healthier eating venues as well as ample public space amenable to walking, both attract businesses to meet the food tastes of residents and generate the taxes to improve and maintain those enjoyable public spaces. The point I'm trying to say here is thin real estate is expensive. So going back to that farmer's market in Marin County, I mean, it's it's the most expensive county in the state of California to live in, it's also where the home values, yeah, the home values are higher, and it's also the thinnest county in uh, the state. Now, is that because because of features of the built environment? Well, there, it's actually a sprawling county, so it, does, you know, it doesn't match with the thesis, but it says just something about race and class and wealth that makes it leptogenic, that, right. Um, so, finally, the thesis fundamentally relies on the energy balance model of obesogenesis. So features of the built environment matter because they are imagined to mediate <coughs> caloric intake and output. Um, and I mean, this is what we all assume, is that people get fat because they take in too many calories relative to those they expend. I mean, this is all you read about. It's all about calories, mm -hmm. calories, calories. Well, this too is an assumption um, that bears further scrutiny. So that's what I want to talk about for the rest of, for most of the rest of my talk is some things that challenge the uh, energy balance model of obesogenesis. So the problem is that the energy balance model doesn't do an adequate job of explaining the significant and abrupt rise in size since 1980. Here's a graph of the rise in different BMI categories for the United States since 1987. It also doesn't explain 
variations in obesity among different populations. <coughs> so we know that, in, in, well, at least in the United States, it's pretty consistent that um, African Americans and Latinos, particularly women, are bigger than white women, um, and both are bigger than Asians. Those are the only kind of categories that are measured. That, and white women show the biggest variation in size relative to their socioeconomic status. But it's, again, it's not clear that the energy balance model explains that. So um, obesity is generally measured through the body mass index. I'm sure you all know what it, that is. Um, because it's become the kind of paradigmatic way to measure obesity. It's, it's not unproblematic because it's basically a weight to height ratio with your height squared, the or the denominator squared. So um, uh, it favors height. And it also favors, it also if, you, if one has a lot of muscle mass or uh, bone mass, one will have more weight and that can affect the BMI. And uh, yeah, so so it, it 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 doesn't. It's supposed to measure about a paucity of fat tissue, and it doesn't do that very well. But it's useful for epidemiological context because you can glean it from health surveys as, as along with clinical measurements, which you can't do from most other ways of measuring fat tissue. Um. Anyway. Uh, it, in terms of the, the change, in, and 1980 is, is kind of the, the, the key year where everything, everything in the world seems to change, as we know. Um, and that's certainly when rates of obesity started going up. Um, so in 1980, the average BMI in, for both men and women in the United States was 25. By 2002, it was about two, two, 28. Um, so that's equivalent to about a 20-pound weight gain for a woman who's five foot five inches, um, which doesn't seem so shocking when you're 20, 20 pounds, pound. around 20 pounds. Um, and since then, it's slowed or leveled off for all population groups, or for most population groups. Now, genetics, traditionally understood, can't possibly explain this abrupt change. There's um, been only a few cases, like I think 5% of cases of of extreme obesity have been linked to genetic mutation. So we think of, of evolution as happening in kind of glacial evolutionary pace. So that can't explain it. Um, so it's assumed to be changes in eating and physical activity. So it comes down the energy balance model. And the variation among different groups is assumed to be about different eating and, or self-practices. Um, so the idea that people of low socioeconomic status are bigger is, is assumed because they, you know, eat more cheap food and supersize. Um, and that may in part be true, but there are some puzzles um, or challenges to the energy balance model. So empirically, the presumption that people eat more and exercise less than they used to um, hasn't actually been proven, and the, the, kind of the best review of this is by a book by uh, two Australian scholars, um, Michael Gard and Jan Wright, and they look at a wealth of studies, hundreds of studies, and don't find conclusive evidence that, um, that people eat more and, and exercise less. Um, now, part of it is um, 
that a lot of the studies rely on self-reporting, which is notoriously problematic. But if you're talking about variations among social groups, then you can't, then one would have to assume that the self-reporting skews the same way, I and mean, otherwise you're saying, oh, but that group is more likely to lie, and which would be really problematic. Um, so anyways, the, the literature on food intake is quite a contradictory, and some studies have even suggested a, a reduction in food intake. It's, it's quite hard to note, and other ways of kind of measuring this are like food availability, like that's what they um, talk about in terms of the United States, like uh, because the U.S. produces many more calories per capita in agriculture than it did <coughs> a generation ago. It says, well, that's why we're getting fat, but we know that a lot of that excess food goes into uh, grain for livestock, a lot of it goes into biofuels, a lot of it's exported. So that just doesn't, it's not a good measure of what people eat at all. Um, this is the logo for a report that was issued by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, it was based on national health surveys collected in 2007 and 2008, um, and it was measuring calories per capita, and it found marked similarity among racial groups and daily caloric intake. So it was 2,198 calories for whites, 2,095 for African Americans, 2,109 for Mexican Americans. That, so that was the, the only groups that they measured. Um, it did not show that caloric intake uh, substantially differs by income. Those earning less than $25,000 per year reported consuming 2,104 calories per day, while those earning more than $75,000 per year reported consuming 2,238 calories per day. Now. Again, that's just one study. Again, it's based on self-reporting, but it's, it's, it's just that it's not all what we think. Um, then there's the, whoops, let me do that. Then there's this upward skew, a uh, significant increase in very big people since 1980. Um, so you can see that in the top categories of the slide if you, if you plot BMIs on a bell curve, you'll see that the tail on the right side is much higher than the tail on the left. Um, and so you see uh, some very big people getting bigger. And I'm talking here for people four or 500 pounds, 600 pounds. And so that is significant to think about. And it, it, it at least suggests that there's different dynamics going on than what seems to be a kind of more average weight gain of, well, particularly if you, if you count that in the mean, the average weight gain among the general population may be closer to 15 or 20 pounds per year. It's not how this is visualized in the media where you always see, uh, you know, the backsides of very huge people. But so many of these statistics kind of blur what the dynamics and changes are among populations. There's parallel evidence that um, very big children are getting bigger while other increases in size among children are flattening. Um, and then the, the kicker is this rise in infant obesity. So there was a, a major study of health maintenance organizations in Massachusetts and it found a 73% increase in infant obesity since 1980. Um, these, by infants, we're talking about zero to six month olds. 
which is something that hardly can be explained by a failure to work out at the gym or eating too many Cheetos. So, what might explain this? This is a slide of Bruce Blumberg. He's an endocrinologist at the University of California, Irvine. I had the opportunity to interview him. Um, and he's put forward a theory of, and he's among several people who are now talking about environmental obesogens. So you're talking about toxins that make people bigger. So there's a emerging evidence by him and others that suggests that a number of exogenous substances, environmental toxins, may be playing a role in the rise in size. Um, uh, this was first theorized by an English woman, actually, Paula Bailey Hamilton, who published her findings in the Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine and, and didn't publish them anywhere else. And I guess she was seen as a quack because of her publication choices. In this article, she pointed the finger at the proliferation of synthetic organic and inorganic chemicals since 1940 in the form of pesticides, dyes, perfumes, cosmetics, medicines, food additives, plastics, fire retardant, solvents, surfactants, and many others. Kind of gets scary when you think about it. In making her case, she cited a number of studies that had shown that exposure to the to these very to various pesticides lab, lab animals have produced significant weight gain with a, with even when caloric intake was cut in half. And she notes that these results have been ignored, explained away, or even missed because they weren't part of the working hypotheses of the studies. She also included this graph in her article. So on the left, the left curve, the circle curve, is supposed to represent the release of synthetic chemicals in the environment, and the, and the triangle curve is supposed to represent the growth in obesity since 1980. Well, excuse me, this would easily be a spurious correlation because we know just about everything in the world has increased since 1980. I mean, we talked, there's always these graphs of the increase in corn production in the United States, and of course, corn goes into a lot of processed foods, so people say it's about the corn production. But you know, people drive more hybrid cars, they watch more videos. I know tougher college admissions have gotten a lot tougher because my kid just you know went did, went through that. I mean, there's just a lot of different things, so it's hard to make a claim that this is a strong association of, that could be causality. Nevertheless, an increasing number of sciences, scientists now believe that she was on to something, and she was increasingly cited in this emerging research on environmental obesogens. So what's the evidence? Uh, well, there's a growing number of animal studies that are showing that exposures to various chemicals affect body size. Um, the most extensive research has been done by a uh, scientist at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences uh, in the Raleigh-Durham Triangle in North Carolina. Her name is Rita Newbold, and I had the opportunity to um, interview her as well. Um, she had been working with DES, or Dethylstyvestrol, for development issues. Um, I should say, does everybody know what DES is? It's, it's really a significant piece of this story. So DES um, is a synthetic estrogen that was given to women um, in, in the United States. It was only allowed for use in the United States. Well, Europe did thalidomide, which was equally problematic. 
But in the, uh, anyways, it was given to women in the 50s and 60s to prevent miscarriage and promote lactation. And it didn't work very well. Um, it, it didn't, you know, the clinical effects that had regular rates of miscarriage and I don't know what the lactation was. Um, anyways, the women weren't particularly adversely affected, but their progeny had unusual rates of uh, infertility and reproductive cancers. It didn't manifest until they were adults. So there's a significant lag time between this dose and it was an intergenerational lag time. So back to Rita Newbold, she had been working with DES uh, on lab animals to look at other kind of developmental issues that may be associated with DES. And she noticed that all the animals she was working with were getting bigger, so much so that she had to <clears throat> change the sizes of the cages she was using to hold them. So then she started doing work particularly to see about whether DES and other chemicals were indeed causing obesity. Um, and she has uh, done many different experiments and she's controlled for diet and exercise in all of her animal studies with the only variable being the dose of estrogen. And as she put it, the results have been consistent, conclusive, and convincing. So, for instance, mice exposed to synthetic estrogen during gestation seem not to be affected at birth, but are 20 to 30% bigger at adulthood than other adult mice. So this slide um, is taken right from her one of her articles, um, and you see the bigger mouse has been exposed to DES. And again, this happens at gestation. Um, there's been similar findings with bisphenol A, which is used in plastic bottles, it lines soup cans, um, it's used in toys, it's everywhere. The, the U.S. was considering banning bisphenol A this year, and, and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, said the evidence wasn't convincing enough, which is a fairly typical occurrence. Um, a recent study by the Center for Disease Control found that 95% of people had detectable amounts of BPA in their urine. Um, there's also been studies, not, not only animal studies, but in vitro studies, lab dish studies, um, and those studies have found that some of these chemicals can, uh, can generate stem cells that have no particular destination to become adipocytes or fat cells and can actually increase the number of fat cells in the body. Um, and then there's some epidemiological studies. Um, it's obviously very hard to, to study this epidemiologically. There's all sorts of obstacles to that, but there's some evidence there. Um, scientists in North Carolina found that kids exposed to higher levels of PCBs and DBE before birth or fatter than those exposed to lower levels. Um, now, the levels is an interesting thing, too, because the dose-response curve is not linear, so that would make another complication for the epidemiological studies. Now, the ways in which this is supposed to work, or is believed to work, is now uh, discussed as being epigenetic. Um, and Epi for on top of the gene. 
So in this, the field of epigenetics um, has existed for quite a few years, but it's mainly been focused on psychosocial issues and nutritional issues. But in the last four or five, six years, um, people have looked at environmental epigenetics. And so epigenetics refers to a range of mechanisms that redirect phenotypical development without altering the underlying DNA sequence, gener generally by interfering with gene expression. So the most well understood epigenetic process is, a, is called methylation. <coughs> methylation occurs when combinations of carbon and hydrogen atoms attach themselves along the DNA. And this, so what methylation does is it deactivates specific genes, thereby affecting the development of the organism. So, uh, so, yeah, so methylation is interesting because rather than what, you know, acting genes, it, it, yeah, it's just, I'll just say it again, it's just, it deactivates the genes. So in the case of obesity, it's suppressing a gene that is, it, that tends to create proteins for growth and development. Um, importantly, and this is the kicker, methylation is heritable. So when the DNA divides, or excuse me, when the cell divides, the methylation pattern persists through the organism's lifetime and possibly beyond. So these changes pass on. Um, and and there's been studies that have shown this epidemiologically. So there's this really well-cited study um, that involved tracking the descendants of victims of the Nazi-imposed Dutch famine. And many of them, many of the descendants have higher BMIs, are more prone to diabetes and hypertension and cardiovascular disease. And so what these studies have shown is that these descendants still have a methylated gene um, that, that's a, a gene that's a key factor in growth and development. So in this vein, some in the field of epigenetics have now theorized that long-term exposures to, to psychosocial stress or past nutritional deprivations could also help explain the relationship between low socioeconomic status and obesity prevalence that many assume is a consequence of their current day dietary habits. So this is, a, this is something that's really worth emphasizing. It's something I've been writing on and thinking about more since then. This suggests that, that our bodies have biological histories that have been remade by, by all sorts of exposures and stresses that are passed on and can actually explain some di some differences in body types um, that are that seem that are racial or socioeconomic. So it means race becomes an effect rather than a cause of racism. So the critical point here is that the exposures often occur in utero, um, and so what that means is that there are no calories involved directly, at least for the fetus. Now, over time, this is likely interactive when you have this kind of different epigene, epigenome, what you do in your lifetime in terms of your cell practices may exacerbate that. But there's something here that's about not calories. 
And you know, and then and this, there's so many other kind of uh, challenges to the calorie model that I that I could t say a little bit about. I mean, th there's um, uh, there's evidence that suggests that people who have are very have a lot of stress have a lot of circulating cortisol, the stress hormone, um, and that interferes with the growth hormone, and that seems to cause obesity. There's um, there's really interesting evidence about the time of day people eat and problems with insomnia <laughs> and obesity. Um, and then, of course, you know, even within kind of cur current day debates in nutrition, the calorie is being increasingly challenged as a way to measure nutritional intake. Um, you know, studies that show that w that if you eat the same amount of calories with different combinations of fat and protein and and carbohydrates that actually fat, which is high calorie per gram, seems to cause weight reduction relative to carbohydrates. So even within nutrition science, there's a lot of challenges to the calorie. Um, so that's about calories. There's also some really interesting research on the role of fat tissue. Um, so one piece of evidence is, is, or one kind of big discovery about 10 years ago, of about 10 years ago, is that fat tissue is a regulator. It's part of the human endocrine system. It's just not passive. So um, uh, several hormones are secreted by fat tissue, and that some of those hormones suppress appetite, and some protect against insulin resistance. Um, but this can also be disrupted and stimulate appetite. And, and, and uh, fat can also be a response to inflammation and create more fat. So fat can go either way in terms of how it protects the body. And I should just say, make, and here's another caveat, I'm not trained as a biologist at all, and so I can't explain to you much more than I'm telling you. So my point here is to suggest, like I've been, you know, combing through this research in the abstracts just to see this kind of dissident science and this is the stuff I've come up with and I can't tell you that it's dominant, I can't tell you that it's completely correct, but I can tell you there's other ways of thinking about that than what we hear in current discourses. Um, so in some of this research you see acknowledgement that fat can be um, adaptive and not necessarily pathological. Um, you know, you constantly hear that um, obesity causes diabetes, um, and the two are related, but it's not clear that that's the causal direction. And um, uh, there's some evidence that fat can be protective against diabetes because it, the, it's the, the glucose is stored in the fat tissue rather than circulating in the blood. Um, and there's recent research on what's called the obesity paradox that suggests that diabetes patients of normal weight are much more likely to die than those who are overweight. Um, and there's lots and lots of studies that show that overweight, moderately obese patients with certain chronic diseases often live longer and fare better than so-called normal weight patients with the same ailments. And we know that, or it's certainly assumed that fat can be protective as people age. So I think some of this helps answer some of those challenges and puzzles that I mentioned earlier. Since already existing fat cells 
are not only hard to get rid of, but produce more fat cells. There's a potential some very large gains of fatness from non-exceptional exposures to these chemicals. So that can explain why some very big people are getting bigger. Um, this lag time between exposure and manifestation and this intergenerational lag time that, that epigenetics reveals explains how exposures in the 40s and 50s and 60s where you know the high time of chemicals might have manifest in this jump in obesity mm -hmm. in the 80s and now a leveling off as I think my guess is that people more prone to to have be affected by that have already been so. Um, and of course it also might I keep on missing my slides. It may explain infant obesity, um, which is something different than the lag time, but here you have a baby um, chewing on plastic. Um, and um, I should say that um, synthetic, um, or not synthetic, when um, soy is estrogenic as well, and Rita Newbold's experiment, she also did um, experiments with genistein, which is a phytoestrogen phyto soy. And so you have all this soy going into baby formula. Yeah. Um, and it, it may be that some of the stuff explains the spatial variation in BMI in terms of agricultural, industrial, chemical exposures. Um, but I haven't seen anything that has even begun to test that. So what are the implications for food governance? Don't eat plastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, you got to love that. So, well, there's many different chemicals that have implicated in many different possible pathways. Um, the definitive findings are for bisphenol A, uh, PFOA, that I don't know the full name of that, or I can't remember it. It's, a, um, it's used to line pizza boxes. It's a grease-proofing agent. Or, and another chemical is um, TBT, tribulatin. It's it used as a paint preserver in seafood-bearing boats. Um, again, BPA is used not only in plastic bottles, but also to line cans. Um, uh, I mentioned the phytoestrogens um, and the soy. Um, there's evidence for several other agricultural chemicals, um, most of which have been associated with developmental disorders, but now are believed to be contributing to obesity. And then here's the one I think is really interesting, is um, beef hormones. So as those of you who follow uh, you know, W2O trade wars know, the US used lots of hormones in its beef production. And um, they used to use DES to fatten beef, and they outlawed it. But of the six hormones that are still given to beef cattle in conventional food production, um, they're, they're virtually analogs of DES. Now there's very little research on this. Um, and I imagine it's because the beef cattle industry has a pretty powerful lobby to ensure that research doesn't get done. Um, but it's pretty interesting. And there's certainly lots of suspicion that hormones in beef could be could be affecting humans. 
and all of those likely act epigenetically. Um, now what's significant here is that many of these are used in the making and storing of the food supply. So it, these findings at the very least really complicate issues of good food and prevailing concerns with nutrients and calories in particular. Um, so the research brings into much sharper focus how food is made. Um, now it turns out that a lot of the processed junky food is also is likely made with this stuff, but it may be less about the calories in that bag of Doritos than the, the other, the, the, the corn, the lessons, and the other kind of ingredients in those Doritos. Um, so, um, at, as such, this research really challenges current approaches to changing the food system, at least in the U.S., where there's been a significant neglect of regulatory reform, and nearly all nearly all social movement activity has focused on developing positive alternatives to the food system, like farmers markets, like community supported agriculture, like community gardens, and also educating people about how great fresh fruits and vegetables are. Um, and this is, uh, you know, this is something a lot of my research is about, is about the limitations of alternative food as a social change strategy. Um, now these chemicals are used because of regulatory failure um, and you know since the United States Environmental Protection Agency was formed in 1970 to regulate agrochemicals and or industrial chemicals only about a, a handful of chemicals that have actually been taken off the market. DDT was one of them. There's been particularly since the kind of on advent of neoliberalism, there's the the agency still exists, but it's been defunded. You have, you know, it's run by people who have been uh, who support the chemical industry, etc. So it's not enough to fix this through alternatives, because what we're getting in the United States, and I imagine elsewhere as well, um, is. We, there's like this kind of great healthy food system for those who can afford to buy healthy food and a lot of, or, or chemical free food. And you know, I, I'm not talking about my research on organics today, but I could. But organics are designed to cost more. I mean, that's what incentivizes people to be organic is that they get a price premium if they, if they abide by an organic label. So, uh, so you have a regulatory burden on producers who are supposedly doing the right thing by reducing or eliminating the use of agrochemicals and the rest of the food supply, you know, the people, producers can use whatever they want. And so you have this relatively chemical-free, more nutritious food for those who can afford it and the rest of the, everybody else gets the dregs, as I like to say. Um, because the obesogenic environment thesis also makes assumptions about what causes obesity, again, lack of the right food, this research poses an additional challenge to that as well. It suggests that we may indeed have obesogenic environments, but they do not owe to the built form. So this also has implications for food governance. Um, again, a lot of activity has been directed to changing the supply in the built form, more farmers markets, produce deliveries, um, actually very little effort to 
change where supermarkets locate because that is harder because supermarkets actually want to buy go where there's buying power in a lot of food deserts there's no not buying power um, but as I've implied all along this attention to the built form also has race and class consequences making food deserts more like healthy places like that farmers market I showed in Marin County is in effect a form of gentrification um, so what I'm arguing overall then is that we have seen quite a bit of problem closure around the so-called problem of obesity. Um, you know, the politically palatable and doable solutions have driven problem conceptualization. Um, yet I think these easy roads are unlikely to be effective and, are, and again have only been effective for a few given this emerging knowledge about environmental toxins. Um, I've also hinted that obesity may not pose a gargantuan health problem. We assume it does. Um, now, these aren't the only ways we've seen problem closure around obesity. I, my book challenges just about everything that's ever said about obesity. Um, it's, it's definitely a provocation. The point of the book is to not um, provide definitive answers, but to suggest that we don't know as much as we think we do, and to suggest that, the con that, we have, that there are social consequences of approaching obesity, obesity the way we have. Um, so it's, this is intended to be a provocation, not a definitive research statement, and I'm not qualified to give it that. But um, I think that's what I'll end it with and give you this food for thought which this is a list of the environmental working groups dirty dozen so you know we're all supposed to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables i'm a big fan of fresh fruits and vegetables and i really am but you know here we see that uh these are some of the favorite fruits and vegetables have some of the higher highest uh uses of pesticides well great <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that'll make it go better <laughs>